Hey, Rafer. Hey, Kristen. Where were you in 1984? 1984, I was in uh, I was in uh, Southern California moping. What were you? What were you doing? Isn't, isn't Southern California also in 1984, where walking down the street you might run into a certain human-like robot? It is. It is. That's where. That's 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 where that's where a human-like robot. Uh, I think traveled back through time. It was May 12th. May 12th, 1984. Oh, as, I, as I recall. Do you remember what you were doing May 12th, 1984? You know, that's a good question, and I don't. I was probably I was in high school. I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't standing around in the street corner while a giant pulsating ball of energy was delivering a cyborg <laughs> that had traveled through time <laughs> to come kill a man. I was not doing that either. <laughs> I was probably watching reruns of Little House on the Prairie. I was like 10, you know, whatever. I was probably too young for any of that stuff. Oh, but I was going to see The Terminator. Believe and, me. And did you see it in the theater back then? Of course I did. Oh, of course. Really? You kidding? Wow. Who's not going to go see The Terminator? Because it's 1984. Of course you're going to do it. All right. You're a teenage boy in California. All right. And who would have thought, who would have thought all these years later, we'd be on Terminator movie number five, Terminator Genesis. Bringing us all the way back. That's right, folks, to 1984. That's right. Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) still with us. They said he wouldn't be around. They said he was a flash in the pan, but no. Look. And this one has more than one Arnold, by the way. There are are many Arnolds in this particular new Terminator 5. We'll get to that in a moment. Speaking of of other possible flashes of the pan, we've also got Magic Mike XXL uh, with Channing Tatum. Another person that we all thought would not be sticking around, eh? Not you, though, Rafer. You always had faith in Channing. I certainly did. Your belief in Channing Tatum goes beyond all reason or... Logic. I, I have, have no. I have no idea is, why you've believed so strongly in him over the years. As George Michael said, you got to have faith. <laughs> and uh, we'll also touch briefly on the new documentary, Amy, about the late singer Amy Winehouse. Uh, but before we talk about these things, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday, and I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway, and this is Movie Date. Kristen, let's rewind back to 1984. Take us back. Terminator Genesis. (laughs) All right. So you might recall that in the last couple of Terminators, nobody went to the theater or cared. That does not matter. That's right. It doesn't matter because in this movie, we're actually just going back to the original first two movies, the story of Sarah Connor, of her son, John Connor. As you might recall, in the very first movie, the 1984 original Terminator, we have a robot cyborg sort of thing sent back in time. And that robot cyborg thing, that Terminator, if you will, is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's supposed to kill Sarah Connor because down the road, Sarah Connor is going to have a son and that son is going to lead the human resistance against the machines. Skynet. Yes, Skynet. So in this particular version of that same movie, because yes, this is actually going at that same original story from a different perspective and a different angle, only we're in the future and they're sending a Terminator back in time to 1984. It's all convoluted. It's all going from different angles. It's all kind of exciting. It's called Terminator Genesis. Here's a clip. Listen to me, Reese, everything's changed. The 1984 John sent you to, it no longer exists. No, this is all wrong, all right? John, John sent me here to save you. From the Terminator that was sent back to kill me, I know, but we already took care of him. We? 
so the premise is exciting, Rafer, but is the follow through actually exciting? Well, uh, you know, now I don't. Were you a fan of the original Terminator at any point, Kristen? I actually loved T2. I didn't see right. the original Terminator in the theater. I was too young. But Terminator 2, I was old enough to see, and it was my first time going to a stadium theater experience. Ah. My first time in stadium seating. And I just remember my friends and I, we were teenagers, were blown away by those special effects. It, it, was, it, was, the, it was like a game changer. We'd never seen, you know, those liquid cops. The liquid metal. Rob, oh, Robert, Robert Patrick as the, as the T-2000, I think, if that, I get my models mixed up there, but he was, he was the, the, sec, the second generation Terminator made out of oh, liquid metal. He was so amazing. Incredible. The film won several Oscars, including an Oscar for special effects, and I do think that was one of the rare sequels that um, equaled and possibly surpassed the first movie. It was so good. It was so good. So to answer your question, I was a T2 fan. Okay. So that make that makes sense. You do get in this movie a lot of a, a, a lot of the first two films. You know, there's a, the movie, I think, kind of opens up with a, a bid for nostalgia. You've got uh, Schwarzenegger comes back to Los Angeles as the Terminator. There are some punks hanging around Griffith Observatory. He's going to mess with them. You've got another cop who turns out to be a liquid metal Terminator, and he gets a <laughs> bullet hole in his eye, but he just sucks that bullet up and goes right back to being the normal cop. And... So you get these sort of rehashes of these much-beloved Terminator scenes, the scenes that we all remember from the oh, first yeah. two movies. Um, so, And those I found, um, well, I just felt like deja vu. I just felt like I'd seen that before. I just, it, was, it was almost, it was like, um, I don't even know what to say. It was like having Indiana Jones come back and crack a whip at someone and shoot the guy when and he's got his knife. And there's a crystal skull. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I kind of think like, well, I, I, I actually, I saw that. Already, I literally saw that scene already. Um, what about the rest of the film? Well, I, I just have to say something about the casting here. Okay. So for the lead characters, obviously we have Arnold Schwarzenegger back again, which a lot of people are very excited about because yeah. he was not in Terminator Three or Terminator Four. Really, he was. Yes, he definitely was not in Terminator Four. Yes, <laughs> but in this movie, he's back. But then for the Sarah Connor character, we have Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones, yeah. who is an adorable, tiny little pixie thing. She's like kind of soft and curvy, and she's like 5'2". And I have to say, that was a real miscast, in my opinion. She's just cutesy, like a cupie doll. I want Sarah Connor to be fierce and look like she's going to kill me. Yeah. She's I, wanna, the... I want her to look like a one person army right and she does not look like a one-person army in this movie and did you not like jai courtney as uh kyle reese the the, the future soldier sent back to protect sarah connor it, it's not that i didn't like jai courtney it's more a case of i think they could have cast someone slightly better his casting didn't bug me nearly as much as the casting of sarah connor i like him he's from the Diver the divergent movies and i, I actually think he's kind of good yeah i thought he was fine I did have an issue with John Connor, though. Oh, you did? Jason Clark plays yes. uh, John Connor. Why? What was your issue with him? Because do you remember how in Terminator 2 you had Eddie Furlong, the little teenage kid who was so slick and he was so punk and he was so fierce? Yeah. In, in, in as much as you can be when you're like junior high aged kid. Yeah. It's kind of a snot. Yeah. But he was so just like punk rock in a way. And then... In this world, it's just like, oh, you kind of seem just like a rageaholic suburban dad. 
Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. And it's like, I don't want a rageaholic suburban dad. I want That's... someone who's kind of like fierce and punk rock and looks subversive. That's interesting. And nobody well... seemed subversive at all in this movie to me. I wanted people who seemed kind of punk rock and subversive. That's interesting. Well, given where they take this plot, they couldn't really do the whole punk rock thing with John Connor. And I guess we should say we should say no more about uh, about that plot line. I'll just um, say it gets kind of meta. It does get a little meta. Um, I just found Terminator Genesis to be so incredibly boring. I just I felt like this was just it just felt like another bat to the knees on this whole franchise. I just felt like this franchise has been so beat up and battered and ill used ever since James Cameron departed from the first and after the first two films. Um, it's just been diminishing return. I think this has got to be the worst of 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 the five. Mm. And it's so. Um, It's just it's the same damn storyline over and over and over again and the same sort of nonsense time travel uh, gobbledygook. I couldn't I couldn't even follow any of it. It made no sense. (laughs) And Arnold Schwarzenegger, I've never seen him look so bored. I've never seen him look so bored and lifeless. I cannot blame him for this movie. I can't blame him. Like I said, I had more of an issue with the supporting cast than I did with him. And I actually liked the premise of this movie. I really did. But... In the end, it just got too convoluted. It just got overloaded. They kept on throwing in more characters and more complications that didn't need to be there. I love, for example, J.K. Simmons, who shows up in the movie at a certain point, but he didn't need to be there. No, he didn't. No, he was completely extraneous. Yeah, and there were a bunch of things like that where it's like, I like this idea, but you don't need to be in here. I don't know why any of this is in here, folks. So you're saying, I'm I'm saying Terminator Genesis is just, it's a terrible date. It's not a good date. I have to agree with you, Rafer. I don't think I thought it was quite as terrible as you thought it was, but I still thought it was pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Rafer, let's completely change course here a little bit and talk about a documentary, the highly anticipated new documentary about Amy Winehouse. And you have a special connection with this film. Yeah, well, I mean, um, and I don't want to overplay it, but um, I was kind of an early adopter of Amy Winehouse. Um, I was a rock critic uh, back when she was uh, first breaking on American shores, and uh, her publicist, Tracy Miller, sent me a copy of the album way before it was being released. Uh, It wasn't released in England, I don't think, and it wasn't going to be released in America for many months, like six months. And... I I got that album and I played it and I was just completely blown away. I'd never heard of Amy Winehouse. No one had at the time. Um, and I was just foaming at the mouth for months waiting for this album to hit so I could start writing about her and hope that she would come to America's shores and see her and interview her. I was there for her very first U.S. concert uh, and I did get a chance to interview her when she came for that, that whole junket. Um, and... I was just such a huge fan, and it was so heartbreaking to watch what happened afterwards to see her spiral down into alcoholism and drug addiction, you know, all very sadly ironic because of her, you know, her her big hit single, as we all know, was Rehab. It was this big cry such of a defiance. Great song still. Great, great song, and such a shocking, defiant, crazy, rebellious song. Um, that I, I was such a huge fan. This documentary... Um, takes you all through her life, really, from, from her very, very first days as a as an early, early singer-songwriter in London, all the way up until the end. Here's a clip. Amy was a girl that just wanted to be loved. I fell in love with someone who I would have died for. And that's like a real drug, isn't it? This is 
someone who is trying to disappear. Now, Rafer, the filmmakers actually reached out to you at one point. Tell us about that. They did um, because I was one of, um, as, again, as far as I can tell, I think I was the only newspaper critic to review that show, that first show at Joe's Pub in Manhattan in um, January 2007. And a couple days later, I interviewed her. It was really just me and the Washington Post, I think, were the only two newspapers who ran features off that little tour that she did, that little kind of press tour. Um, again, I could be wrong, but those are the only clips I've ever been able to find are, are, are mine and the Post. Uh, and the filmmakers wanted to know if I still had the audio from that interview, and I did not. I could not find it anywhere. I'd had several office moves. I'd had my computer changed several times, um, and I could not find it anywhere. I felt really bad because that would have been a great thing to have, obviously. Um, so, yeah, they did reach out to me. I couldn't be a part of the film in that sense. Um, but I think the film is really good. Uh, I think that it spreads a lot of blame around um, as a as a media person who covered her. I, I, I feel a little bit complicit in terms of having played up her party girl image and her bad girl image and her wildness. Um, and then later on having to see sort of what became of that sort of when reality really hit the wall for her um, and how it wasn't kind of cool and funny and shocking anymore. It just seemed like depressing. And she was a person who needed help and wasn't getting it. Um her family is not happy with the documentary. I know they released a statement. Oh, I thought they were. I thought they were instrumental in the documentary. I think in they. Some way. I think they were initially, um, and they released a statement distancing themselves officially from the documentary. They were very unhappy with it, um, and I think that's because the the father, her father, takes a few hits. I would say um, um, nothing that I felt was below the belt or um, that painted him as a villain necessarily. But the family's not happy with it. I think if you're an Amy Winehouse fan. Um, the real value in the movie is to see um, the the pre the pre fame Amy Winehouse the 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 images of her before all of that stuff happened are really interesting um, and it's interesting to go back and see these early clips of her in a little nightclub somewhere in London playing and she looks so so happy she looks so much happier to be on stage playing this music for a small crowd which is something she always said she would rather do. She never wanted to be famous. Um, and I think that turned out to be true. I think she was one of the rare celebrities that really did not want to be famous. Um, so if you're an Amy Winehouse fan or any kind of music fan, really, um, I think it's a really good, a really good movie. I, I would say Amy is a really good date. Wow. Wow. I'll definitely check that out, Rafer. But there's another movie out there that might be trying to target me more as, That's true. as a heterosexual female <laughs> and targeting you as the ultimate Channing Tatum fan. Because you are really his number one fan in America, I think, right? I don't know if I'm his number one fan in America. I'm sure there's somebody out there that has like actual posters of him in, in her bedroom, which I don't have. But I do think that I'm a very big uh, Channing Tatum fan. I do love him. You're talking about Magic Mike. Double XL, Kristen. That is correct. Double XL. And um, yeah, he actually has a buddy in the movie, you might recall. who His, his buddy, we'll call him Big Richie. Yes, Big Richie. We, Big... Won't, so we won't say what the big is referring to. Oh, yeah. So yeah, this movie is um, supersized in a few different ways, right? <laughs> right? I guess you could say that, Kristen. <laughs> All right. Well, in this one, Magic Mike is back. It's three years after the action of the first Magic Mike. The first one, you might recall, he's kind of a working class hero. Rafer, I believe you called the movie something of a Saturday Night Fever for a new generation. It is. It's totally Saturday Night Fever all over again. Great movie, Magic yeah. Mike. And um, much smarter than you'd think. It's not just like all abs and all dancing. The yeah. first movie actually is making a lot of 
commentary on the state of the economy in America, mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. what it's like to be a man, mm-hmm. on trying to forge your own path, and um, and having relationships that aren't always solid or trustworthy. And this movie kind of doesn't even pick up where the last one left off. It just goes in a whole new direction. It's just like, oh, let's go on a road trip, all of us strippers, yeah. and let's go to the stripper convention. So it's kind of a, you know, not not even similar at all to the first one. And Steven Soderbergh did not direct this one, but he directed the first one. So it is a slightly different movie. Here's a clip. I got a little treat for y'all tonight. It's a man I knew as white chocolate. Some might know him as Magic Mike. We're going to see if he still got some magic in that mic. Now, Rafer... A lot of times you take a movie franchise in a totally different direction, and that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. I remember when Cars came out with their sequel, you actually liked the sequel. I know. I was one of the few people you that really liked Cars too. Yeah. So, I mean, so, really is a strong word, but I was I was fine with it, and everyone else was really appalled. <laughs> just appalled by the whole spy spoof Cars 2 thing. <laughs> but as somebody who can really enjoy a movie going in another direction than the original, how did you feel about this Magic Mike sequel? Well... I had some trepidation because Soderbergh is not the director on this one, and I think Soderbergh's a Soderbergh's a serious guy, and he can do, he can also do mainstream in a serious way that many other directors can't. And I think that was the that was the magic of Magic Mike, the first movie. He's back. He's doing cinematography for the movie, which is why it still looks like a Soderbergh movie. And he also mm-hmm. does the editing. But his first AD, his first assistant director, Gregory Jacobs, who's worked with Soderbergh for years and years, is the director for this one. Uh, He's making his feature film debut on this. And this is the same screenwriter. But, yeah, what you've got is the Kings of Tampa, which is uh, Magic Mike's stripper crew. They've all kind of fallen by the wayside. Uh, You know, Mike has exited the game. But they all want to come back and do one last blowout. And they're all going to go to the stripper convention. And and so they're going to take a road trip and do this thing. Which is fine. And it made me think, all right, so instead of getting, you know, sort of the serious magic mic, we're going to have more of a pitch perfect, bring it on, drumline, you know, one of these kind of competition dance off sort of movies. And that could work. But I just felt that there wasn't enough dancing in this film. um, And I felt that it was really a lot of scenes of just the actors kind of just riffing off of each other and doing these ad-libbed scenes with these very sketchily drawn characters and trying to make something out of the moment. And I felt like while it had a certain naturalism to it, like a certain kind of edgy kind of real feel, it was also kind of boring to watch. Yeah. A lot of the times they're on drugs in this movie. Yeah. It really does feel like you're eavesdropping on a bunch of stoners having a conversation (laughs) that's kind of interesting to them, but even to them, not that interesting. Yeah. And I don't want to listen to a bunch of stoners have a conversation that even they know is not that interesting. Yeah. And they're not talking about anything of any real depth. They're they're, they're not addressing anything that I would call a a, a serious subject or, or, or even an insightful or interesting topic. They're just kind of flinging lines around. I think also I know I'm a huge Channing Tatum fan, but I do think he's only as good as his director. And I Mm. think one of the things about this movie is Gregory Jacobs just kind of turns the camera on and lets these actors riff. And there are these scenes with Channing Tatum and Amber Heard, who plays this 
I don't know what she is. She's, she's a former stripper who's trying to be a photographer. She's trying to stay off the is pole. She a, is she a former stripper? Isn't oh, she saying that she's trying yeah, to stay she off the pole? Say, but I couldn't, like the first scene we see her in? Yeah, I couldn't tell if that was a. I couldn't tell if that was a some kind of a euphemism remark <laughs> or just some kind of a snotty something or other. But um, okay, maybe you're right. Anyway, so she plays this kind of bisexual, sullen, kind of flirty, but kind of hostile amateur photographer. And she and Channing Tatum just have no chemistry oh, whatsoever. And chemistry. They, they, they step on each other's lines. They interrupt each other. One of them's trying to get a sentence out. The other one says something. Their timing <laughs> is all off. And I think it's because um, they're being, like, not directed. And their first meeting is, like, on a beach. And Amber Heard is almost drowned in complete shadow. You can't even see her face. And, and it's this weird scene where I kept thinking... He's who is that? Who is she's talking to him? Right. Who is he talking to? Is, is she is she uh, is she good looking? Is she not good looking? Is she old, young? Is she someone in his social circle? Who I, I can't even tell what's supposed to be happening here. And <laughs> I think I felt like that throughout a lot of the movie. What's going on? What's the point of this scene? I found it really frustrating. Yeah, and I mean. It has almost no plot. Let's keep this in mind that it has no plot. So a lot of well, it's got no plot, no conflict, no theme, no anything. It has no filler, and at least in the Bring It On world or in the Pitch Perfect world, there are competitions leading up to the final thing. And in this one, there's like no competition. There's no competition. The yeah, there's like one time they're in a drag club and they're also dancing, but not dancing well, not no. dancing their best, just kind of you know vamping, goofing. Yeah, yeah, and then and then they go to other clubs and watch other guys dance. Right. And some of these guys, some of these guys are good. I mean, you know, Matt Matt Bomer, uh, uh, he you know he's interesting. Um, you know, Joe Manganiello, I think, is really interesting. Uh, they're they're fun oh, to watch. I will watch. say, there's one Joe Manganiello scene that's pretty fun in a convenience store. Yes, the, the, it's the Cheetos water dance. The convenience store scene is pretty good. I think his Fifty Shades of Grey routine is kind of funny and good. Um, but that's just not enough to but hang a movie on. That's and like I, six minutes of the whole movie. Right. And so ultimately I felt like you, you you stripped all the seriousness out of Magic Mike, which is what made it special. And you didn't give us any of the fun of like a drumline or a bring it on to make it fun. And so I just thought Magic Mike was a pretty disappointing date. Unfortunately, I have to agree with you, Rafer. I have to say Magic Mike. I love Naked Men. I know I you do. Hot, I love hot naked men, but I've never been so bored with hot naked men as I have been with Magic Mike Double XL. That says a lot. All right, well, stay with us because coming up, Rafer and I are going to talk about the movies that make us proud to be an American. Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Rafer Guzman. And this is Movie Date. And we want to ask you guys, if you can, if you can, a small favor. Would you mind visiting us at iTunes? Because on iTunes, if you give us a couple of stars, a rating, a few good words, it helps other people who listen to Movie Date find us if they're trying to subscribe to us. So if you could do that, that would be fantastic. But let's move on to some real business here. America. I love it. And you love it too, Rafer. I love America. America's great. And it's America's birthday. Happy birthday, America. Happy birthday. So we're going to talk about some movies that make us feel in that happy birthday America mood. We each picked a couple of films to help you folks out there who maybe feel the fireworks in your heart and want to see some fireworks on your little screen there. 
Also, I think we should note that none of these films are Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> Born on the 4th of July. Born on the 4th of July. <laughs> to Kill a Mockingbird. None. No, as much as we love those movies. Yes. We, we love America and we, and we love movies about America, but we really wanted to profile like really quintessential great American people, American values, what it feels like to be an American, a little less than what happens on Capitol Hill. That's right. So, Kristen, your first pick. All right. So my first pick is Milk. This is the biopic by uh, Gus Van Sant about Harvey Milk, who was an activist for gay rights in America. And what a great time for gay rights in America right now. Just last week with the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage, which I guess nowadays we just call marriage. Marriage. (laughs) Sure. Why not? And Harvey Milk was controversial in lots of ways. You know, he was somebody who believed in outing people before the era of people choosing to out themselves when people were much more in the closet. And it was a tough time that he was trying to forge a path in and be loud and proud and gay. And in the film, we have Sean Penn playing Harvey Milk. Here's a clip. And your law goes even further. That it's any school employee who even supports a gay person can be fired. Well, that's true. The gay people don't have any children of their own. And if they don't recruit our children, they'd all just die away. You know, and, and that's why they're also interested in becoming teachers, because they want to encourage our children to join them. And how do you teach homosexualities? Like French? Well, I was born of heterosexual parents taught by heterosexual teachers in a fiercely heterosexual society. So why then am I homosexual? And no offense meant, but if it were true that children mimic their teachers, We'd have a hell of a lot more nuns running around. Of course, not all of us can be like Harvey Milk. Not all of us are going to be activists. Not all of us are. We're not all going to be trailblazers. We're not all going to be heroes and so on. But that being said, he's somebody that we can all be proud of. And we can look at him and say, oh, he makes me proud to be an American. He didn't do everything right. He screwed up sometimes. But he, you know, made the way for where we are right now in lots of ways. And I just think Milk is a really enjoyable film, too. The way it's paced, the way the characters work together, the way the conflicts play out. It's a very enjoyable film. I loved Milk. I thought that was a great movie. Um, okay, my my pick is uh, All the President's Men from 1976, which I know a lot of people would say, well, that's sort of an anti-American film. That's about the end of America's innocence. It's about uh, Richard Nixon and the Watergate break-in and the moment when America realized that uh, government was a cesspool of corruption and there was no denying it anymore um, because uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward of the Washington Post uh, proved it all to us. But um, I think this movie really shows the value of the free press, obviously. And I think that's one of the great things about it. And I think it's great to see a movie where the press is going to say something to you that is unpopular, that people don't want to hear, that everyone would rather uh, turn a blind eye to. Um, This is a a great movie by Alan uh, Alan J. Pakula, who also did um, Clute and the Parallax View. This is kind of his um, his paranoid phase back in the back in the seventies. Um, but I feel like even though this film feels like a conspiracy thriller in a way, and that's the fun of it. Um, you've got uh, 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 Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein and uh, uh, Robert Redford as Bob Woodward. Those are your two your two heroes. Uh, you know, tra- tracking down the tracking down the villains, chasing the money. Um, but even though it feels a little bit like a thriller, I really think it, it says a lot more about. Um, the press, which is one of the great things about this country. Here's a clip. 
How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Love that. We're so lucky to have a freedom of press because otherwise we would Boy, not have we. this podcast. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, I hate, I hate to point to Russia, but you have only to look to Russia to, mm. to show you what a country without the freedom of the press looks like. Mm, we're very, very lucky. Yay, America. Yay. Yay. All right. My next pick, Coal Miner's Daughter, biopic uh. about the great Loretta Lynn, who came from very, very poor, I'm not even going to say working class, just extremely impoverished family living in Appalachia, her family. Coal miners, obviously. She's a coal miner's daughter. Tons of siblings. She's married off at 13 or 14. Before you know it, she's got just a whole brood of children, just tons of kids. A passel. A A passel of kids. (laughs) So many children. And she doesn't even understand how reproduction works. She has to, you know, check out books from the library. She doesn't really know how anything works. So she comes from total poverty and then she manages to make it up in this world and become hugely famous as a singer who we all know and who we all love and who's considered an outspoken feminist. She might not always call herself a feminist, but she sang songs about the pill. She sang songs about being a strong woman, about standing up for yourself, about equal rights. And all of this in the greatest kind of, you know, Horatio Elger American dream sort of way, just by pulling herself up by her bootstraps, using her own talent and, and it's hard not to just root for her in this movie. Here's a clip. Okay, fellas. Donald Ray. Daddy. Jack, well, hand that to Brother Jack. Thank you. Take the baby Jack. How they feel, gang? Daddy Peggy got two right feet. What? I make two right shoes. Well, I'll be darned. Don't worry. We'll get them changed. How they feel. Loretta. Get your hands off. Leave him alone. Leave him alone, Donald Ray. Hey, how come she gets something extra? Jack, Loretta's getting to be a woman. Going on 14. Women's supposed to have pretty things. Oh, she ain't no woman. She ain't nothing but a dad burn kid. (laughs) Well, what are you, Herman? That's Sissy Spacek, of course, playing Loretta Lynn. Just wonderful. And Loretta Lynn once said that when um, she was shown clips of the film before it came out, she saw little tiny Sissy Spacek playing her. And she said, that is me. That is me (laughs) as a young girl. That you could not have asked for a better person to play me. So she approved of this movie. I'm not a big country fan, but um, Loretta Lynn is one of the few that I really really love. Her and Dolly. Hopefully there'll be a really good Dolly biopic someday. Dolly of Dolly, of course. Um, (laughs) Also Leanne Womack. I like Leanne Womack. Really? I do. Interesting. That is interesting, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know why, but I really do. Um, Okay, so uh, my last pick then for, uh, for for this segment is going to be Easy Rider from 1969. Again, I know this is a counterculture film. I know this is the, one of the films that sort of embodies the uh, the hippie dream that uh, many people felt was undermining the country at the time. Um, but uh, I always felt that the hippies were the real Americans. Um, and I think this movie made one of the better cases for this. Uh, so this is, uh, as everyone probably knows, 
Dennis Hopper directed this and co-wrote it um, with Peter Fonda. Um, Fonda plays a guy named Wyatt. Hopper plays a guy named Billy. Significantly, names of uh, Wild West outlaws, which they chose on purpose. And they're two guys on motorcycles. They're going to go across country and try to find America. You know, Peter, Peter Fonda actually has a Stars and Stripes spangled Harley that he rides. Uh, and along the way, they meet uh, Jack Nicholson as an ACLU lawyer. They get stoned, and they're going to keep on their journey and... Uh, see what they find. Here's a clip. This used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's going on with it. Man, everybody got chicken. That's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into like a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? They think we're going to cut their throat or something, man. They're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They scared of what you represent to them. Amen. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. So, once again, uh, I know that this film seems like an anti-American film. It does have, I will say, a rather bleak and somewhat self-pitying ending, but uh, I do still... Also American. Also, (laughs) one could say, somewhat. Uh, But again, I really do feel like this film... Uh, holds up the hippies as the real Americans, the real individualists, the idealists, the dream chasers, and the ones who are going to say, uh, if I don't like something about this country, I'm going to forge another way and I'm going to stand up and speak up about it. And that's America to me and always has been. So that's my that's my final pick. Well, happy birthday, America. There's four for the fourth. Yes, yes. So, Rafer, it's that sad time when we say goodbye to our listeners. But before we do... We, of course, have trivia. So what did we ask last week, Rafer? Well, last week we were talking about a documentary called A Dangerous Game that was all about uh, the golf industry. Most people don't think about golf being a very dangerous game. But uh, we found a movie that shows you just how reckless, just how wild golf can be. We played this clip. I can't believe you're a professional golfer. I think you should be working at the snack bar. You better relax, Bob. There is no way that you could have been as bad at hockey as you are at golf. All right, let's go. We asked you to name that movie, and we got this answer. Hi, this is Donna Lang. I'm calling about the movie date trivia question. The answer is Happy Gilmore. Oh, my goodness, that is just the trippiest movie ever. And I I half expected your uh, clip to have... Why don't you like your home in it? <laughs> send them home. I just send them home. It's time to go home there, ball. Son of a bitch, ball. Why didn't you just go home? That's your home. Are you too good for your home? Answer me. I'm pretty sure I'm right, but, you know, hey, there you go. Have a great day. Bye. Great job, Donna. Thank you so much for calling. Yes, indeed. Happy Gilmore. I I would say Happy Gilmore, to me, is the zenith of Adam Sandler's career. I think that is the peak. I think that movie More is... More than The Wedding Singer? Yes. Oh, I, oh, oh, Happy Gilmore any day over The Wedding Singer. That's also a very good movie. But yeah. Happy Happy Gilmore, to me, is just Marx Brothers level wonderfulness in terms of comedy. <laughs> Love that movie. Kristen, what is this week's stumper? All right. Well, this week... In honor of Magic Mike XXL, we are going to play a clip from another movie that features people taking off their clothes as part of the plot line. Here's that clip. 
What if next Friday 400 women turn round and say he's too fat, he's too old and he is a pigeon-chested little tosser? What happens then, eh? They wouldn't say that, would they? Why not? He's just said her tits are too big. Well, that's different. We're blokes. Yeah, and? Well, I think she's got nice tits, actually. Well, I never said all about her personality, like. I mean, she's probably quite nice if you get to know her. No, and they won't say nothing about your personality, neither. Which is good, cos you're basically a bastard. If you know that movie, give us a call. 5717-MOVIES. Or you can write to us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast.com.